Have you ever wondered how it is that we can recognize so many different objects in so many different places, in so many different contexts, but we've maybe only seen that object once in our lives, and we don't see it again for years later? Welcome to this week's episode of Who Cares What's the Point, Season 2, Episode 7. Now, in this episode, I'm talking to Mark Shergin, who is a graduate researcher at Johns Hopkins University in the US. And he's talking about the problem of object recognition. Now, what he's found is that actually it's not so much the object, but how we object, how we watch the object move through time and space that seems to underlie this recognition and how we form memories. Listen to my conversation with Mark and see what you think. Thank you, Mark, uh, for joining us on the show. Um, I'll always start off with asking people, uh, what brought you into this area of research in the first place? What were you interested in? Um, well, I guess this started out actually in my first year of grad school. I started talking to a bunch of neuroscientists who were studying long-term memory. And I had no background in anything they were doing. Uh, I came from a vision science background, so I was in a vision science lab, and I had been primarily studying things like face recognition or how you track objects and perception. And I found what these researchers were studying was really interesting. And I also noticed that a lot of them, the way they were studying memory was actually using images of objects. So they would show participants hundreds of images of objects in an encoding task, and then they'd just try and test their memory and see how well they were remembering things. And it led to this realization that they were kind of studying the same thing that a lot of uh, vision scientists actually study, but in a, in a completely different way. So there's a lot of vision scientists who show participants images of real world objects, but the reason they're do doing it is uh, they're trying to understand object recognition. And if you think about it, recognizing an object is sort of a long-term memory problem, so this seems really related, but they're taking a completely different approach. They want to know, well, if I gave you a photograph, so I give a computer program a photograph, how do you know what an object is? It seems kind of like a silly problem, uh, mostly because uh, we recognize objects effortlessly in our everyday lives, but this, this is actually really complex. It's really hard to figure out well, how do humans do it? Or how would you make a computer program be able to tell what an object is? And so a lot of vision scientists have, trying, have been trying to figure out, well, when you see an object, how do you know it's an object? And what's interesting is they're really interest, they're primarily investigating how you perceive objects in the moment, right? So if you see something, how do you know that it's there? They're not really so much interested in the memory aspect of that. They say, oh, of course, once you see the object, then you you know, you're matching it to some sort of memory you have. So the moment that I see a coffee cup, I, I match that coffee cup to some sort of memory of it. But they don't really care too much or don't really go into the details. And this was kind of, I, I had this insight that neuroscientists were basically doing the exact opposite thing. They were studying the same problem, which was this object recognition problem, but they weren't interested in how you saw the object they showed you images of objects, but they just want to make sure you saw them. So they just make sure they were in the center of the screen um, for a long time so that they knew you saw it. And they weren't interested in how you, know, how you perceived it. They just wanted to understand the memory aspect. 
And so you have these kind of two independent sets of researchers studying the same thing. And I wondered, well, can I relate these things together? And specifically, it led to this insight, well, maybe the way you actually see an object is important for how you remember it. Yeah. And, and when I was reading your paper, I guess that's what drew me to it. I was intrigued by this question, the idea that actually once we see an object in a particular circumstance, how is it that we may be able to recognize that object and have a memory for it, even though we may not have seen it for years, even though we may see it in completely different circumstances on the other side of the planet um, and with, with a whole lot of other people or the context is completely different, yet we can still recognize that object. That's what intrigued me about this was um, how, how, how we understand that process. Yeah. And this is something that really we still struggle to understand. I mean, we cannot design computer systems that are able to recognize objects nearly as well as humans. And just as you said, it's, it's kind of crazy. I'm sure people can think of an Atari game system. And if I showed you a picture of that, you might not have seen that for 20 or 30 years years, but you would be able to recognize it. Or even the fact that you have a kid and they might have seen, you know, maybe they were watching a cartoon of Thor and they saw Thor's hammer. And a few weeks later, you take them to the toy store and they're able to point out at a toy Thor hammer and say, oh, that's Thor's hammer. That really, we have this incredibly remarkable ability to recognize objects that we haven't seen for years or to be able to generalize to new circumstances. And that's what kind of the million dollar question is, well, how are we able to do that? It's, it's incredibly hard to design computer systems that can even, you know, match humans a little bit. The ones that can can only really do it in really, really specific circumstances. Yeah. And the ability for us to generalize from just kind of very short exposures. I totally recognize your uh, example. I have a six-year-old daughter and, you know, you could show her something, you know, when she was four and she'll come up with it um, when she's now just over six years old. And I know that she only saw that thing for two or three seconds because we were like walking past a shop and we didn't have much time. Then she'll come out with, oh yeah, that's the thing that this doll was wearing. And I'd be like, yeah, I have no clue, but yeah, you seem to have a very fixed memory of it. I'm no doubt that she's probably right on it because she's done this a few times where I have managed to verify that she's right. So yeah, I totally recognize that. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. And so again, it's just what I'm interested in studying is where this insight came in is, well, how, how are humans able to do this? It's a really big problem. I mean, there's literally thousands of researchers across all sorts of disciplines to figure this out. Yeah. So I know that your your paper is actually quite complex. Um, and I was sat there reading it going, I would love to have a conversation with you where you could uh, perhaps walk us through what the ideas were that you were trying to test and how it is that you went about this. And I guess the, starting off with the fundamental premise that actually um, the exposure to a memory is not necessarily just kind of like one snapshot in time, but actually it seems to be more complex than that. It's almost like a series. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So there's a couple of ways that I could unpack this, perhaps going off of what you were just saying is you can, you can imagine that when you see something once, so let's say I had a baseball and it's in my hand and we happen to be in the same room and I just toss this baseball across the room, right? So I'm just tossing a ball across across the room. And to us, that seems like just one event. Oh, the, the ball flew across the room. But really what you can think about it is at, it's a 
of events. It's kind of your, your mind is taking little snapshots at different points in time. And at each point in time, as you move forward, that ball is going to look slightly different. It's going to be moving faster or slower. The light might be hitting it in a different way. So really, you can think of just that one event of the ball flying across the room as multiple sort of photos that your brain's taking of that ball. Mm. So it's almost like the frame. There's so, lots and lots yeah. of different frames that are unrolling over time. And each of those frames, like you say, the light is changing. There may be variation um, across those frames. Yeah. And what our idea was basically what we what we hypothesized and what we found in the paper is that maybe you're actually using this as a learning opportunity because if you know that that ball is the same object despite the fact that at each moment in time it looks very different from itself you can actually kind of learn well what are the stable and diagnostic features what what makes this baseball look most like a baseball so that you can build a really good memory of what you saw Right. So you're almost kind of um, assembling this kind of prototypical baseball as you're viewing it, you're learning about it. And, and it kind of reminds me of this kind of process of fuzzy logic as you're speaking about it then. Uh, uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Somewhat. Yeah, a little bit. Maybe. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's, um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, it, it is. It, it's, uh, I just like to think of it again as a learning opportunity. Mm. It's kind of like, well, if you kind of know how it's changing, you can actually then it's going to help you in the circumstances we were talking about earlier, like with your daughter. If, if you know how it changes, then when you see it in a completely new circumstance, whether that's a day, a month or a year from now, you're going to be better at recognizing it because you know how it can look different. So you have this idea as well that you perhaps can unpack for me, this idea of um, core knowledge, this idea that we have some kind of innate understanding as to the, the sorts of physics around the, how the world works that, that assists us in this, in this learning opportunity. Yeah, so core knowledge is this really fascinating concept. It's really, really important in the developmental literature uh, with good reason, because you're trying to figure out, well, what do infants and children know about the world, right? And you can think of it almost on a really simple basis as core knowledge is kind of the things that are built in from the very beginning for how our mind works. Uh, and everybody is going to agree on certain things that are part of core knowledge, uh, such as you could just say simply humans can only see certain amounts of light, right? So we can't see all colors that exist within the entire light spectrum. And so that's sort of like a restriction. It's going to restrict how we kind of move about the world. But uh, more interestingly, we found that there's a lot of there's a lot of different aspects which we would call components of core knowledge, such as what you referred to as gravity. Um, or object solidity. So for example, you know an object can't fall through another object. So if I have a ball and it, 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 I put it on a table, it's not going to just fall through it. So you know that objects are solid. Um, and you know that objects sort of move through the world in ways you would kind of expect them to behave in, in, in accordance to like just the laws of physics. So if I drop a ball, it's going to fall. It's not just going to stay in midair. And these are aspects of core knowledge because a lot of research has shown that 
this isn't just, you know, expectations that human adults have. So I don't think you or I would be too surprised <laughs> to say that if I dropped a ball, an adult would expect it to fall <laughs> unless something was holding it. But actually children, infants, and even um, non-human primates. So uh, rhesus monkeys have been shown to reason about the world like this. So they kind of expect objects to move in a certain way. And that's why it's kind of, it's typically termed as a component of core knowledge is because we're assuming that this is an evolutionary adaptable trait, that there's has to be some reason why this is a built-in mechanism for how we see the world. Mm -hmm. And there's probably a good reason for it. Okay. So I'm going to ask you now to perhaps start thinking about how we um, join these concepts together and in, in how you are looking at solving this problem as to how we recognize objects over time and indeed kind of space. That's kind of like the idea of tracking them using kind of like core knowledge. So perhaps you can explain a little bit about what you did and then we can carry on talking about that. Yeah, so I'm trying to think of the best way to go about this. I guess I would say that, well, so going off of core knowledge and specifically what we looked at in the paper was that you sort of, the way that you typically perceive an object in a given moment has to do a lot more with how that object is actually moving, much more so than how it looks. Um, that seems like a kind of confusing and unintuitive concept at first, but it's perhaps best illustrated by uh, the phrase, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's Superman. So in that phrase, you know that whoever's saying that, you know, uh, that famous saying is seeing the same object. They're seeing Superman the entire time, but at different moments at time, in time, they sort of extracted different amounts of information that led to those differing classifications. So at early on, they see something, oh, it's a bird, and then they gather more information and they say, no, it's a, it, it must be a plane. And finally they gain even more information and they say, oh, no, that is Superman. And the idea there again is not that, oh, first that person saw a bird and then a plane and then Superman. You knew that it was the same object the entire time. You just were seeing different things at each of those moments that led to those different classifications. And it turns out that when you're actually perceiving objects, it, it doesn't the way an object looks is actually not nearly as important as how it's moving. Uh, I th think another example that makes this really simple is if you're walking down the street and you happen to see two twins passing by, you don't naturally go, oh, there's the same person in two different places. You kind of make the natural inference, oh, no, despite the fact they look identical, these are two different individuals. They're two twins. And, and so we decided to sort of take that aspect of core knowledge that, well, how an object is moving through space and time seems to be really important for how you perceive that object and say, well, does that actually matter for memory? Okay, so is there something about the, the way that this person is moving or this object is moving that then is a learning opportunity for you to actually understand that actually that thing that is moving in this way is actually the same object? And then how is it that we can well, recall that? So that's, that, that's exactly it. So this kind of goes back to the ball example, the baseball example that I was talking about when you're throwing it across the room. The idea is, well... 
maybe the reason why we don't really care so much for how an object looks and much more about how it's looking through how it, and much more about how it's moving through space and time. The reason for that is because you are sort of learning about it. So if you can tag something as an individual and you don't necessarily care how it looks, then you can actually take each of those snapshots, such as all those sort of snapshots of that baseball, and use that to learn more about how that baseball actually looks under different conditions. So as it's moving across the room, as it's spinning, as the light is hitting it in different ways, you know it's the same object, and then your brain can kind of learn more about how that object changes under those different circumstances. Mm. And in order to test this idea... Oh, yeah? Mm, yeah, no, so carry on. <laughs> no worries. So in order to test this idea, what we did was we decided to show images of real-world objects in a typical long-term memory experiment. So uh, very much modeled after the memory experiments that I was sort of referring to uh, that these neuroscientists do um, is we gave participants images of hundreds of objects in an encoding task, and then afterwards we test their memory for those objects. But what was really important and different about our study was at encoding, we, we showed these objects moving. And, and what we did was we showed these objects moving twice. So we'd give you an image of the same object twice in a given trial, but we'd show in a way that either implied one individual or two individuals. And I think perhaps the easiest way to explain it is we, we had a bunch of different types of ways we manipulated motion in this paper, but the easiest to, that I think most people, or at least that I can, I, that I think I can readily uh, explain is uh, in uh, some of the trials, what happened was we'd have a pillar on the left and a pillar on the right side of the screen. And participants were just supposed to fixate in the center of the screen. And what would happen was an object would come out from behind one of these pillars. So let's say an object comes out from behind the left pillar. So the left pillar was covering it. And it would move to the center of the screen and then move back behind the pillar. And so it would do this for about a second. And then participants would see the same image, the same image of that object again. But in half the trials, they would see it appear from the same pillar. So it would come out back again from the left pillar, move to the center of the screen, and then go behind um, the left pillar again. And in the other half of the trials, it, that same image of that object would not come from the left pillar, but the right pillar. And so if you think about this in terms of how you normally see things in the real world, if an object is coming out from behind a tree or something twice, but from behind the same tree, you can kind of reason that it's probably the same object, right? So you know that it's the same individual. Right. But in those moments where the image of the real-world object came out from first the left pillar and then the right pillar, you know that it can't be the same individual. So despite the fact that that image was exactly the same, it looked exactly the same, you know it's not the same individual. Right. You'd assume there that there were two different individual objects yeah so to think of it in the ball example you you just assume it was two different baseballs or, or two different soccer balls or something like that so if you saw if you were out in a field and you happen to see a ball come out uh, um from behind a tree and then someone kicked it back from behind another tree and then another ball came from the 
other from your right side of your hemisphere, so you're looking towards the right, you'd know it's not the same soccer ball. Just because you know, know that an, an object can't suddenly, you know, change where it is in space and time from one place to another without actually traveling there. Okay, so you've got this variation, you've got it coming from either the left or the right pillar. Um, what, what, what did you find then in terms of um, the impact on people's uh, memory? So it's, it, it was actually very surprising, to be honest, because if you think about it, whether you're seeing this, this object of a real-world image, so you're seeing, let's say, a teddy bear appear twice from, from behind the same pillar or behind two different pillars, in each of those cases, you're seeing the image for two seconds, and most people, they don't, it's not hard for you to see. Um, so most people don't really notice anything funny about the task. Uh, no one said they had trouble seeing anything, and they're seeing both of these images, um, whether they see it uh, from behind the same pillar or different pillars for two seconds each, which is a pretty long time. And what we observed is that when you see the image of these objects traversing the same path, so when they come out from behind the same occluders, you actually have much better memory. So across some of our experiments, we found that you had up to 20% better memory performance when you saw it come out from behind the same path than when you saw it come out from behind two different paths, so behind two different pillars or occluders. Okay, so the same exposure, the same object coming back and f coming back and forth from the same side the same pillar on one one trial and then the other one it's um, coming from the other side the people where it's coming back and forth from the same side the same pillar they have 20 percent better recall than the other side than the other group yeah and there's yeah and some of our experiments in all of our experiments they had better memory but in some of our experiments it was up to 20 percent. the effects could get quite large that it's pretty large for the memory literature yeah, that is a big effect for the memory literature. So, um, what what do you make of this, Mark? Um, um, what do you, how do you explain this? So, the way we explain it in the paper is it's it's again going off this idea. So, why why is it important for when you perceive an object that you perceive it not, not according to how it looks, but according to how it's moving? Again, it's kind of a little unintuitive when you think about it at first, but. Perhaps one of the reasons why we actually do this and why it's considered, you know, a component of what we discussed earlier of core knowledge uh, of, of the way that not just humans, but even primates reason about the world and see objects is because it's actually there to build memories. Because if you see an object moving along the same path, you know that it's the same individual. And so then you can learn about it. So you can use that to integrate both of those encounters into a single long-term memory. So what we think is happening is when you see those two encounters and they happen to come from behind two different pillars, so they're not the same individual, your visual system goes, oh no, this can't be the same object, despite the fact it looks the same, despite the fact that I'm seeing them for the same amount of time. What ha happens is you build two separate memories and you just don't learn as much. You don't put as much information into those memories because you're building two memories based off of a second instead of building one really robust memory where you're integrating, you know, both encounters up to two, two seconds worth of information. Mm. So, you know what I, I'm thinking now as you're talking, that perhaps 
you know, this has really um, signaled how important the idea of visual tracking is for me. But also when I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking about anticipatory visual tracking, perhaps built upon the core knowledge that we might have. You know, we expect objects to behave in this way. So I'm tracking this object, but I'm also anticipating what's going to happen next, which then perhaps increases my exposure to this object so I can learn more about it. Yeah, you know, that could be, it, it, it's kind of funny, um, when when we first had these results and we only had one or two experiments, a lot of people thought, well, maybe you're anticipating the object or maybe it's, it's surprising in some way, um, but it definitely is something along those lines. In the paper, we couldn't really 100% give a full explanation for what's causing it. So along what you just said, it could be something like attention. So it could be that basically the reason that we track objects in this way is because our attention just is naturally drawn to objects moving in this in a certain uh, in a certain way, uh, uh, moving according to the laws of physics, and so you're kind of just anticipating it. It's attention sort of refocusing as the object moves along the same path. Um, but it also totally remains possible that this is completely something that's happening in memory. Mm. We really haven't. We, we don't know the answer to that yet. So unfortunately, more uh, more experiments and perhaps maybe even some neuroimaging is going to be necessary to disambiguate that. But it appears that at least across some of our manipulations, we, we controlled for some aspects of attention and we use different types of memory tests. We use different types of motion manipulation that um, are in the paper that we haven't discussed here, but it makes it... it so that there is actually a fairly strong case that maybe this is a memory process, actually, which is kind of interesting. It's your your brain is actually seeing this object for the same amount of time. And what's also interesting that isn't included in the paper, but um, I've reported at conferences when I was presenting this work, is over the short term, you don't see any memory difference. So if I test you immediately after I show you these objects, you, you don't show any difference in terms of how you remember them over the course of like, like five or 10 seconds. Mm -hmm. It really appears that this is something that is happening in the long term. But again, it could be something like uh, how you're ex expecting it to move or anticipating it to move, or it could be a more memory explanation. Um, we really don't know at this point. You know, that's really interesting to me that you don't see the short term effect, but you do see the long term. And I'm immediately drawn to an example, a real world example where I hear and I've experienced this myself, where somebody in your family will will talk about somebody in a younger generation and they'll look at how they're moving or walking and they'll say, you walk like Grandpa Joe or you walk like Grandma um, Sudarshan. Or, or whatever, you know, they've got a kind of like a memory of how a person in this kind of family of objects, should we say, move. <laughs> yeah. And then they, that's, they that's see a, and recognize yeah. that. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting example. And yeah, I, I, I really don't know. So um, in terms of what the expectation is, or if this is something that's happening when you're building a memory, it's not clear whether this is happening in perception, memory, or both. But it is it is interesting that, you know, even in your family example, you kind of expect things to move in certain ways. Uh, I probably wouldn't take that example of a family member saying you move like Uncle Joe as um, an aspect of core knowledge. 
knowledge, but it is definitely relatable to this study. So, so where where you think um, this, where do you think this is important, Mark? Um, why why is this something that you think we should care about? What's the point here? Uh, there's there's a few reasons. So, uh, um, one of the easiest ones to point out right away kind of just goes back to the motivation behind the study, which is I realized there were these vision scientists studying object recognition and these neuroscientists studying long-term memory. And really they were studying the same thing, just using different methods. And so part of this study is on um, an intellectual level, just saying, oh, well, these two groups of researchers should probably talk more. But even practically it's saying, well, we have all these long-term term memory researchers, especially in the neuroscience domain, who are trying to figure out things like um, Alzheimer's disease or dementia or memory-related pathologies that you know are impairing our memory abilities. And if these researchers are using images of objects and they're not necessarily moving through the screen, they might not actually be fully engaging the learning mechanisms we use. So for future research, for our understanding of memory, it might actually be important for us to consider how things are moving or how we're presented that information beyond just trying to isolate, well, what's happening in this area of the brain as participants make these sorts of responses at test. Hmm. And so that's, that's maybe one way that it's uh, relatable, at least in the memory literature itself, and more broadly, um, seems pretty important for a lot of the advances going on right now in machine learning and deep neural learning networks. I'm sure a lot of people actually uh, interact with products that are the result of machine learning on a daily basis, even if they're not aware of it. Um, perhaps maybe one of the biggest ones in the news that I can think of is Google or Uber's self-driving cars, right? So we have all of these companies that are trying to create um, basically computer programs that are able to drive a car. It's a really, really complex task. Again, this is something that humans do once we learn pretty effortlessly, but it's really hard to make a computer program or a model um, that's able to accomplish these tasks. And uh, so far, it seems like they're doing pretty okay, although I, I think I recently read in the is there was some sort of crash with an Uber car. Uh, but what's interesting is a lot of these uh, machine learning models, they're very, very powerful, and they're very good at doing some specific things. But one of the major limitations they have is they're not very good at dealing with variability. Um, so to sort of put this in context, you could imagine that if you're driving and you come upon a stop sign, you typically see a stop sign the same, sort of facing the same way, right? It's always going to be facing towards you. Mm -hmm. And so the majority of the time that you see a stop sign, you're getting it 99.9% .9 of the time, you're seeing something in a very predictable way, right? It's going to be right in front of you. Um, your headlights are going to be on it if it's night out or if it's bright out, you're going to be able to see it fine. But what happens is these models have that these self-driving cars are using have a lot of issues once you start introducing variability. So 
what if a gust of wind damaged the sign and it's slightly off to the side? Mm-hmm. Or the sign happens to be in a place it typically isn't. Or you could even think, what if it was really foggy out and it just so happened that the car hadn't had, this computer program hadn't had that much experience dealing with what objects look like in the fog just because this is something that doesn't happen too often. Um, that's when these models fall apart. And especially in the case of driving, this is really, really important, right? Because if the self-driving car is really good at knowing what a pedestrian is 99% of the time, but that 1% of the time a pedestrian comes out in an unexpected way and the car hits it, that's a big deal. And what my, what our research shows is perhaps one of the ways that these models in the these machine learning algorithms can solve this problem is actually by using the same sort of rules that humans do it, by learning through how objects move in space and time. So instead of kind of learning about, well, how do stop signs typically look, because you are training these models, again, based off of the ways that you generally see things, you can train it based off of, well, how does it change as it's moving through space and time? So as the car moves, how does this stop sign change? And what seem to be the diagnostic features that are going to help you recognize a stop sign or recognize a pedestrian, even if you see it in a very unexpected way? And so these results actually might be able to be integrated into these types of machine learning and deep learning neural networks uh, um, in order to make them much more tolerant to variability to really improve them and make them act a lot more like humans and make them better at solving the sorts of problems that we're able to solve. Yeah, that that seems like a really interesting application. I'm also thinking about, you know, if you're thinking about all of these cars that are individually out learning um, about their environment um, in you know some kind of safe environment, but then they're also transmitting that information back so that other vehicles then learn from their experience of how um, the world works when they're seeing objects in motion and tracking them through time and space. That could be uh, actually a rap- fairly rapid learning network. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's really hard when you're building these, these networks too because before you even get the cars out on the road, especially with these deep uh, neural learning networks, which... Is it, it, it's basically just, you can think of, they're trying to model these computer programs almost like the brain. And they require a lot of training. They use supercomputers to train these models before they even put them in the car. And one of the limitations about how we train them is that the, it's, they use something called supervised learning. It's almost like having a teacher over your shoulder, right? Mm. So they showed a video clip of a pedestrian and then and you, say, you, you train it to say whether or not it's a pedestrian. So you, you showed a video of a pedestrian. You ask it, was that a pedestrian? If it says yes, you say good job. And if you say no, then you say no. And it gets that feedback so that it can kind of modify its behavior. Mm. But that's not the way humans learn to recognize objects, right? So I'm sure your daughter, a few times you've pointed out objects to her. But you weren't always there teaching her what every object was throughout her entire life. Yeah. Um, she learned it in what we call an unsupervised fashion. And what we think is the ways that uh, we actually detail in our paper is probably the way that humans learn to recognize objects unsupervised when we don't have labels, uh, when we're not explicitly told what an object is. And so 
going off your example of having these cars throughout the world is you could actually sort of integrate this into the programming and perhaps have it so that it can update its programming so it can learn more in the moment mm. um, because you're not going to have to give it feedback. So you can have it going throughout the world. And as it goes throughout the world, it's going to learn about what a pedestrian looks like. And you're not going to have to have sort of this oracle, this teacher <laughs> in the background saying, yes, that's a pedestrian or no, it's not. So it can kind of just learn naturally the way humans do, actually. And that could be a really cool thing that could hopefully improve how well these self-driving cars work. Yeah, and can you imagine what a shortcut that would be in terms of processing power as well? Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's astounding. And I mean, even, uh, you know, self-driving cars is only one example. And I think it's, it's maybe a little easier, especially since uh, the study that we're discussing is about seeing objects and things like that. But even if you think of Amazon Alexa or Siri, I mean, there's all these virtual assistants, there's all these uh, machine learning algorithms that are making our day-to-day lives easier. And it could be implemented in a variety of different ways to really make these things seem a lot, you know, to, to make these products a lot more powerful and interesting and better for society as a whole. Sure. I guess the last thing I wanted to ask you about is, is similar, but I was thinking about a specific application here, which you may may have experience of from your kind of original training before you started doing this. And that was of um, uh, facial recognition. Um, do you think that mm-hmm. um, we could apply this to that task of facial recognition? Oh. Yeah, absolutely. So this is uh, the, even we can build this off the example I just gave. So I'm sure you realize, like, have you ever used, um, I'm trying to think, like, I I know a lot of people probably have, like, Google Photos has a thing that tries to auto-recognize faces or Apple Photos or even Facebook. Sometimes you'll upload a photo and it'll suggest who it is, right? Um, And those things work pretty well most of the time. I'm I'm always surprised. Ever since they introduced that uh, technology, gosh, uh, way back when I was in undergrad, many, many years ago, um, I was surprised how well it worked, but sometimes you probably notice it doesn't work that well. I've, I've, I've uploaded, uh, 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 photos to Facebook and had it tell me I was my mother (laughs) or something odd like that. And part of the reason is it kind of goes to this whole variability problem I was talking about before. So if you think about it, most of the time we're taking photos, you're, you're staring right in the camera, right? So it's getting this perfect view of this face. So you're seeing this face exactly just facing, you know, right at the camera. And in those circumstances, it does a pretty good job. But the moment you kind of tilt your face or you're seeing it from a different angle, that's when these photo programs that are trying to predict, well, who does this face belong to or what emotion is this, whatever you're trying to do, kind of fall apart. And the idea here is, again, well, perhaps you could integrate sort of what we found in this paper by training it according to, well, if you showed it a bunch of dynamic faces as they were moving, it's going to learn to be able to recognize the identity of a face or perhaps the emotion in a face a lot better, you know, even if it's not facing, you know, even if the face isn't perfectly aimed at the camera, even if the the circumstances changing. And so you can really improve these models of facial recognition uh, to make them a lot better at whatever task you want it to do, whether it's emotion or whether it's even identity or something like that. 
I'm sure a whole lot of security companies and services are perking their ears up at this conversation, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Thanks. Hope you enjoyed the show. I love how we've got on to talking about autonomous cars and how maybe they learn and share information with each other. It's not really where I expected to go when I started having that conversation. Um, You can follow us on Twitter at WCWTP or myself at Saab, Saab Johal, your host and producer for the show. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on the website, whocareswhatsthepoint.com. You find us on Libsyn. You can find us everywhere. Please send us feedback. If you find us on iTunes, please look us up, review and leave a rating because it really helps other people find the show. Until next week, um, have a great one and don't forget. Who cares? What's the point?